0: And atonement theories if you have not watched or listened to part one and two i really encourage you to do that before you jump into part three um, in this part i'm going to deal with atonement theories and extent of the atonement now i'm not going to get to cover all of the various atonement theories but i'm going to certainly hit the three most significant ones And when we talk about an atonement theory, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a view towards understanding what actually Christ does on the cross, okay? And the best way, let me go ahead and spoil it for you. Many atonement theories are pitted against one another. But there is simply no reason for that. The three atonement theories I'm going to give you are best seen not as pick one that you think is right and go with it, but as these three should be bundled together. All of these are happening at the cross of Christ, and we actually see all of them witnessed to in Scripture. And so I've shared my screen with you, and let's look at the first one. This is Christus Victor. This is broadly the idea that Christ is the victor who, through a divine conflict, won victory and triumphed over evil. Uh, if you were looking at scripture, you might go to Genesis 3.15, what's called the first gospel or the Proto-Uangelion. And you would see in Genesis 3.15, the promise, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between your offspring, the serpent's offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise that this king is going to come and he is going to crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent wounds him. And this would be a great little kind of narrative picture of what Christ would accomplish on the cross In accomplishing victory, he would be wounded, but he would accomplish a great victory over death, darkness, evil, and Satan. You go to Colossians 2, verse 15, which I've already quoted, which reads this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in the cross of Christ, he triumphs over the rulers and authorities. These would be the forces of evil and darkness. Hebrews chapter two, we get another little glimpse of this view of the atonement when it says, let me turn there, Hebrews two, beginning in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is another great picture of the Christus Victor aspect of the atonement. You can go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the Christus victor aspect of the atonement is really to be understood as Christ has come, and through his life and his death, he has conquered and won this divine conflict between righteousness and unrighteousness, between God and Satan, between life, and death this is christ as victor christus victor now before i go to the next theory of the atonement what i should say is this is true everything about this view of the atonement is true except for those who would claim this is all christ did on the cross because this is gloriously true of what christ did on the cross but it's not exhaustive of what christ did on the cross let's skip to the next one to point that out moral influence This view of the atonement suggests that Christ's death influences his followers in an ethical way in order to change the pattern of their lives. You already heard in Matthew, what does Jesus say? Hey, I'm going to suffer and die on a cross and whoever's going to follow me needs to pick up their cross to follow me. So that would be a good example of even Jesus saying, yeah, I'm about to show you the way that you are to live. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is probably the greatest summation of this view. Others. So Paul has exhorted them to a very unique moral way of living together. He has given them a way of living that is moral and virtuous. Now, what does he root this in? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Now watch what he does, because he ties his moral exhortation to them into the life and death of Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's that humility component, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so what Paul does here is he tells the church, behave this way. And then to provide the theological rationale, he tells the story of the incarnation, the condi- condescension of the Son of God who humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he might be highly exalted. So what's going to fuel the, uh, the Philippian church's humility, what's going to f- uh, fuel their looking not only to their own interest, but also to the interest of others, counting others more significant than themselves, it is going to be the way of Jesus that he has demonstrated most clearly in his life and in his death. Okay. So this is moral influence. This is gloriously true. Everything that's here is true. But if you were to say, well, that's all that Jesus did was he was just showing the sacrificial way that would not be accurate because while this view is gloriously true, it's not exhaustive, just like Christus Victor. The third kind of Major group. I don't we, we're not gonna get to hit all of the atonement theories, but I wanted to hit at least the three that I think are the biggest and most significant for us. This one really functions in my view as the foundation of the other two. If you lose this one, you lose it all, okay? This is penal substitution, okay? Now this view suggests that Christ's death is the perfect atonement and propitiation for our sins. I'll define that word in just a second. Due to a violation of God's law, only a substitutionary sacrifice could justify, or could satisfy a just God. So this view is broadly this. Humanity rebelled against God. They rejected his rule and reign. Because of that, we are condemned to sin under the law. We are condemned to death under the law, and there must be a sacrifice. The Bible says God cannot acquit the guilty. And this sacrifice must come through death because death is the price that must be paid as a result of sin. Romans 3:23 through 26, right? You're familiar. Uh, uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is also in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, that God took our sin, put it on the Son of God Jesus Christ, and in exchange gave us his righteousness. This is also in First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-four. He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes Isaiah by his wounds. You have been healed. It's in First Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay, listen, I could go to Isaiah 53, I could go to 1 John, I could go to basically anywhere in Romans or Hebrews to talk about this. I could go to Leviticus 16 and talk about the Day of Atonement, and how Christ is coming as both the high priest and the perfect sacrifice. All of these things are things that I could go to because penal substitution is all over the Bible, okay? Now, we don't like this idea, I say we. Some don't like this idea because there's this, there, there, there's this uh, notion that isn't that kind of cruel of God that he would place wrath on his son. And the answer is no, it's not cruel because he's not, it's not just God, the father placing the judgment and wrath against his son. It's God, the son willingly undertaking those things because of the love that he has for his people and so this view is really in my estimation the glue that holds all of the atonement together if christ isn't our substitute then he's not our moral influencer and he can't be our victor Uh, if christ is not our substitute then there is no way of reconciliation to god and there's no possibility that we could walk in any moral way he would demonstrate if you lose substitution as the key motif of the atonement then you're going to lose i think the whole diamond and that's really the best way to think about the atonement It's not just that one of these views is the whole dimension, but almost like a beautiful diamond or a beautiful gem. You hold it up in the light and you kind of look at it f- through every different angle, every different theory of the atonement, and you see its beauty and its wonder. It's not one dimensional, it's multidimensional. And these three dimensions are the most significant as we consider the atonement. Um, expiation and propitiation, these are important categories to have in mind when you're thinking about the work of atonement, okay? Uh, expiation and propitiation are key to understanding the penal substitutionary view. Expiation is broadly the idea of removing guilt from a subject, okay? Uh, this is the cleansing of shame or the turning away of shame. Then there's propitiation, which is the turning away of wrath through a satisfactory offering. In Leviticus 16, in the Day of Atonement Ceremonies, what Jews today would call Yom Kippur, the one day where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, that sacrificial day would involve uh, two goats. One would be the propitiatory goat. This would be a goat who was killed, who was sacrificed. The blood of that goat, of that killed goat, would then be put on another goat, and so that, that, the, kind of that blood would be put on another goat, and then they would run that goat out of the camp. The, that goat is the expiation or the expiatory goat. This sacrificial system was, in this day of atonement sacrifice in particular, was there to prove this point. Humanity needs to both be justified and cleansed. Because sin hasn't just separated for us from God, it has covered us in shame. And what Christ does on the cross, you could think about this like a vertical and a horizontal axis on, axis on a cross, is that the vertical dimension of the cross is the propitiatory dimension of the atonement. God's wrath is satisfied in the Son on our behalf. The horizontal dimension is the cleansing of shame. It's the removing of guilt. So that we're not just free from the impact of shame, we're free from the guilt of shame, Okay. I think if you lose the substitutionary nature of the atonement, you lose the atonement. This is one of those things that I would say is of first importance when we consider what is happening at the cross of Christ. Now, what we're about to do is we're about to ask a question. And the answer to this question we should hold very, very, very open-handedly. Because if what's come before is a matter of certainty, I'm about to invite you into a matter of theological speculation there's some important things to consider about this question but good and well-meaning believers can land on different places as they answer this question without falling out of the bounds of christian orthodoxy so what is the question well the question is what is the extent of the atonement what is the extent of the atonement and when we're asking this question we're really asking what did jesus do on the cross That's what we're asking. And here's the big question. If I ask you, does Christ's death accomplish salvation or does it simply make salvation possible? Now, I mean, that's kind of like the most basic way of formulating the question of how far does the atonement go? Because let me kind of tease this out with you for a moment. Um, If Christ's death accomplishes salvation, then it has to be particular in that not everyone in the world experiences salvation. So if Christ accomplishes salvation, for whom has he accomplished salvation? Historic Calvinists would argue that he accomplished salvation for the elect, meaning that the atonement is particular, or as is sometimes said, the atonement is limited, not in terms of its quality, but in terms of who the atonement is for, okay? If you've ever heard about the five points of Calvinism, editorial note, John Calvin didn't come up with the five points of Calvinism. They were codified after his death in response to criticisms of his work. So tulip is not a John Calvin idea. Tulip is not something that is Calvin. It's not like Calvin was like, open up first books of the institutes and said, let me talk to you about a flower. He didn't do that, okay? They used uh, the five points come from the Synods of Dort. And then long after that, (laughs) uh, people begin to uh, summarize uh, Calvin's thought. uh, And Calvin's thought filtered through the Synods of Dort, which was a confessional statement uh, into the five points of Calvinism that we know as Tula. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, which is what we're talking about right now, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So let's just talk about limited atonement, which is really not the right phrase for it. It sounds good in Tulip, but it's not a very fair estimation of Calvin's views on the topic, or maybe what the Bible says. That would be probably better said as particular redemption, but Tupip probably didn't have the same ring to it as Tulip did. So particular redemption, when we're talking about the extent of the atonement, there are kind of two big views here, particular redemption and universal redemption. Now, in particular redemption, what we're talking about is that Christ actively accomplished salvation on the cross. His blood paid the penalty for the people whom God had elected before the foundation of the world. Okay. Now. Only the most hyper of hyper-Calvinists suggests that that number is either known or locked to, to, to some degree. For most Calvinists, they believe in what we call the free offer of the gospel, meaning it's not our job to determine who's elect and who's not elect. It's our job to give the free offer of the gospel to everyone, knowing that God will seek and save every one of those people who belong to him, and he will do so because he has chosen to through the prayers and the evangelism of his beloved and holy people, the church. So, Particular redemption suggests that Christ has accomplished salvation. Salvation is actually effective and it's effective for those who are in Jesus Christ because of the Father's electing love, okay? That's one view. The other view is universal redemption. And there's kind of universal redemption part A, which is definitely in the camp of Christian orthodoxy. There's universal redemption part B, which is probably not. So let's start with that one universal redemption part b would argue that christ accomplished salvation for everybody past present and future that salvation is accomplished and that no one will be separated from god past present or future because of what christ did on the cross this is what we might call universalism that everybody is going to be saved in the end because of the work of god in jesus christ he's made salvation possible or he's effectively accomplished salvation and he's done it for everybody that view not consistent with the witness of Scripture, and I would say is outside of the pale of Christian orthodoxy. That if somebody held that view, it, it would, I'd be very reluctant um, uh, to, to, to think that they uh, that they're talking about the same God and Lord Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished as the Bibleism as we are as Christians. Uh, Universal Redemption Part A is a very viable way of viewing what Christ did. Um, but in that view, salvation isn't actually accomplished. It's just made possible. So let me explain it to you. In a Universal Redemption Part A, um, they believe that Christ's atonement can, can cover anybody who places their faith in Jesus. So in this way, we wouldn't actually say that on the cross and the atonement, Christ's death accomplishes salvation. We would merely say it made salvation possible for anybody who would place their faith in Jesus. Okay? So this is kind of the whomsoever will may come view of the atonement. Now, I'll say both particular redemption and universal redemption, part. A, or uh, Christ's death accomplished salvation for God's elect people, or God uh, in Christ has made salvation possible for all people who place their faith in Christ, are not as far apart as they seem. But they are wrestling with a big question, which is this. Does Christ's death accomplish salvation or merely make salvation possible? Many people are uh, upset by the particular redemption view. Um, They're upset because they feel like it it limits the possibility of God saving people. What many don't see, though, is that on the opposite side, the idea that Christ has made salvation possible and whomsoever will may come, it is still limited. Except in this view, it's not limited by God's electing love and grace. It's limited by man's rebellious, unwilling, and unable will. So... When you're really asking the question, or when you're answering the question, uh, you're not really thinking through: Is salvation going to happen for everybody? That's not on the table. Uh, there are those who will not be saved. You're really trying to address: Why are there those who are not saved? Is it because they have not been, ha- they have not had their hearts given the gift of faith by grace? Um, by God, or because these people have not exercised their faith and trust that they were born with to place that in God, in Jesus. This is a good question because it helps us do some theological thinking. I'm not going to tell you my view, although maybe you've picked up on it, or maybe you think that you know it, but I would say this, this is one of those good questions that's really helpful for just exercising theological thinking. Um, How do you think through a theological topic? Uh, And it's one of those areas where we have to practice a lot of grace and charity with each other because both of the views that I've detailed are well within the camp of Christian Orthodoxy and would have a happy home. Somebody could uh, believe in particular redemption and be a faithful member at Mosaic. Somebody could believe in universal redemption and be a faithful member of Mosaic. And I know the same is true at Eastside. Um, but uh, this is a good question to kind of think through because it'll help you. One, it kind of help you figure out how do I wrestle with something that is very theologically mysterious? Because this is certainly one of those questions. And I hope this was a good discussion for you to kind of exercise that muscle. That's the end of this lecture on the death of the king and atonement theories. I hope it was helpful to you. Uh, if it wasn't, then uh, tell Caroline. <laughs> But if it was tell me Um, and we're looking forward to the Q and A. So please have watched these or listened to these. Uh, By the time that you show up to the Q and A on Tuesday night, I'll include the zoom link in the email. Uh, And uh, so hopefully you could uh, you you can join us for the Q and A your cohort meetings in between the weeks and the Q and A's are very important for finishing out the Forge program, because again, we're not super interested in downloading a theology to you. We're super interested in you learning how to do theological thinking with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the cohort times and the Q&A times are really valuable for developing that instinct. So I hope this has been a blessing to you and look forward to spending some time with you at the Q&A. Let me stop sharing my screen. Bless you in the name of Christ.